My name is Allison Ho, and it's my privilege to introduce Carl Zinsmeister, who serves as the President's Domestic Policy Advisor. It's a privilege because it gives me the opportunity to express my gratitude for his deeply principled leadership and service to our country. Before he was named by the President to serve as his Domestic Policy Advisor, Mr. Zinsmeister had been a reporter embedded with our troops in combat zones in Iraq. Out of that experience, he has written two books chronicling his time with our troops in harm's way and his evident admiration for and respect for their sacrifice and service is nothing short of inspiring. Mr. Zinsmeister served for a dozen years as editor-in-chief of the American Enterprise, a national magazine of politics, business, and culture. He was also the J.B. Fuqua Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute here in Washington, D.C. His studies and writings have covered topics uh, ranging from economics to social welfare and demographics to cultural trends. He is a graduate of Yale University, but don't hold that against him, and spent uh, time engaged in further studies at Trinity College in Dublin, Ireland. I am so pleased to have the privilege to introduce the President's Domestic Policy Advisor, Carl Zinsmeister. I can't tell you what a treat it is to have Allison introduce me, um, who was one of the first people I started to work with when I joined the White House, is a completely wet-behind-the-ears rookie and who helped get me started. So it's great to see her. You know, you read these books about the White House, and it seems to be literally the norm that they're just tremendous fratricide. You know, they've got the the, the Deaver-Meese splits or the, uh, you know, the Dick Morris-Hillary split. Almost every White House seems to have this classic cleavage. And this White House, I assure you, does not, and it's a real mystery, and it's, although it makes it a much more pleasant place to work, not to have to deal with the backstabbing, but I sometimes think to myself, why is it that, that this apparently normal uh, division has not popped up in the White House? And, and I think there's a lot that goes into it. The president, first and foremost, and his insistence upon collegiality and decency, uh, the fact that we've had two chiefs of staff, both of whom have senses of humor and were, again, kind and decent men. Uh, I happen to think that the fact that there's a lot of religiosity among the White House staff has something to do with it. And the, the other secret factor I've decided is that almost everybody who's ever been near a law school or across the street in front of a law school is a member of the Federalist Society. That in itself brings a certain kind of harmony and, you know, comity that is otherwise lacking. Seriously, when I go to the Justice Department or talk to the lawyers, it's just kind of staggering. There really is this kind of common base that everybody stands on, and it gives us a starting point. Um, when I thought about what I wanted to speak about today, I, uh, set, I sort of rummaged through my, my stash and tried to figure out when I first started coming to Federal Society um, events and speaking at them, and I realized it was about 20 years ago, um, not much long, long after the Society was first founded, and it was really more of a kind of a conspiracy in those days than a, than a full-blown you know, organization with you know, dues-paying members and a logo and uh, secret handshake. I, I assume you have a secret handshake. <laughs> John Conyers knows you has a, have a secret handshake, and he's going to get it out of you. So, um, but uh, you know, you do some quick math, and you you go back to those mid '80s days when I first became aware of the Federalists, and you realize that um, federal domestic spending was only about half then 
what it is today in inflation-adjusted terms. And again, this isn't ancient history. This is the mid-'80s, not, not so long ago. So you have to ask yourself, how did we let that happen? Um, you know, a, a real doubling in a comparatively short period of time. What went into that? Well, the answer is, obviously, that that's what government does organically if, uh, if you don't uh, make sure something else happens. Uh, you know, the, the vine just grows and grows and grows unless there's a gardener's hand there to keep it manageable. Adams, John Adams said, uh, government turns every contingency into an excuse for enhancing power in itself. And, uh, you know, for, for generations we had barriers. We had backstops. We had barbed wire that we used to prevent government from growing uh, completely uh, unto itself. And, um, you know, most particularly we depended on the, you know, the parchment barriers of uh, James Madison. Um, but there have also been economic limits and uh, cultural barriers that moderated the scope of government. My friend Chris DeMuth has a theory uh, that, that um, Jefferson did us a big favor when he seated the federal government in Washington because there was a climatological barrier here that prevented the, uh, the potential, uh, you know, empire builders from sitting at their workbenches for at least a few months during the summer. And, of course, that was all wiped out when Willis Carrier, you know, started air-conditioning buildings. So we're sort of losing our, our backstops. We're losing our... our um, our controls on the natural tendency of government to expand. So, uh, you know, if we can't rely on heat and humidity, and we, and, we, and we, alas, can't always rely on parchment barriers, and we're no longer such a poor nation that we can't afford to do things, now we can't afford to do about anything we want if we're not careful, then how are we going to keep appropriate limits on the state? And I, I think the only answer, the only answer I can think of is that we're going to have to rely on principles. And uh, specifically, solid principles stoutly defended. Now, <clears throat> Washington is not really my natural habitat, but about six months ago, I was pleased to answer a call to serve in, in this administration um, because I believe there would be chances to kind of contribute, you know, to the, the, the taming of Leviathan, if you will. And uh, so I actually gave some thought before I started uh, as to, you know, what kind of principles I'd like to keep in sight during my... Um, my years of duty in behalf of, of modest government. And uh, so I thought this morning what I'd talk about is some of those very broad general principles. I'm not going to talk to you about specifics in domestic policy. If we have time at the end, I'm happy to take questions. But I'm, I'm going to talk to you m much more uh, about the sort of high-altitude principles that I try to keep in mind and I think many of my colleagues in the White House try to keep in mind as we do our work. And a good starting place, I think, is equality. Not probably the first place some of you would start, but I, I think it's a good good place to start. Not, equality, not just in the political sense, um, but just as importantly, I think, in the moral sense. You know, in America, every man, every woman, every child is presumed to have not just equal rights, but equal dignity. And, uh, you know, there's an old aphorism that I try to live by, which says, never be haughty to the humble, nor humble to the haughty. And, um, you know, both sides of that are very important. The, the, the first half, never be haughty to the humble, that, that is a concept uh, you know, deeply rooted in Christianity, obviously, that lies at the very heart of Western democracy. But, and then there's the other half, never be humble to the haughty. That is much more specifically American. Uh, <laughs> that, that comes from our Yankee forebears, you know, don't tread on me. That comes out of our frontier where most of the residents pretty adamantly insisted that uh, every man is, is as good as the next. 
every woman is as worthy as another. And um, let me remind you, this was taken very literally in, 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 in many places. It, it really did not matter if you were rich or blue-blooded or you were the boss of the works. Uh, if you tried to lord it over, you know, a Nantucket sailor or a, uh, or a Kansas sodbuster or an Arizona, you know, uh, rancher, um, there's a pretty good chance you were going to get a bop in the nose at least and maybe worse. Um, in his book, Washington's Crossing, David Hackett Fisher um, captures this well, I think, this sort of feisty egalitarianism of, of Washington's New England regiments who were right on the brink of chaos half the time. There wasn't a lot of military order because of this extreme individualism that they brought to their job. Um, and the historical roots of this uh, interest me. You know, obviously part of it is the fact that a lot of the folks here came in open, explicit rebellion against the whole idea of aristocratic, you know, privilege. That was one of the roots. Another root was the fact that almost all Americans um, owned their own land, owned their own trade. Uh, and another reality is that most of the households were armed. And uh, you don't bully people with firearms strapped on their hips or, or, or hanging over the mantelpiece. I mean, quite literally, this, I think, is historically important. It was certainly an important part of the egalitarian ethic of, of, of the West, uh, where, you know, the little cowhand that weighed 110 pounds soaking wet was very much the equal of any other person if he had, if he had Mr. Colt's product uh, with him. So... Um, Obviously, there, you know, the, this, is, this is somewhat uh, hedged in American history. There was always an understanding that you have to uphold your equality. You have to re- act responsibly and be a worthy citizen. But if you did act respectably in this, citizen, in this, in this country, um, the idea is you are owed respect, period, by definition. No matter whether your, your father you know, made his living, um, what's the great uh, Yates line, made his living fumbling in the greasy till or you know, writing greasy sonnets. Either way, you, uh, you were considered um, to be a respectable citizen. And this isn't just some sort of democratic courtesy. It, it, uh, it, it, I think it's terribly important. It ends up being a, a, a very productive way of involving all citizens in, the, uh, in our self-governing society. I mean, if any of you have lived in Europe or Asia for a while, you will quickly realize that there are big chunks of, of, their, of their societies that are just kind of roped off and aren't allowed to rise very far or contribute very much, and they uh, are, are losers for that. The last senator I sat down with was uh, the son of a Greyhound bus driver. I love hearing that. And I, I love living in a country where there is no wall separating drivers from senators. It's, it's, it's a very easy intercourse, and I'm happy to say it works both ways. You can fall down as well as fall up in this country. And uh, that, as I say, it's not, just, it's not just morally, I think, attractive, but it's, it's very practical. It, it, uh, it makes us both freer and stronger, I think, than the brittle aristocracies that, you know, Yates came from, for instance. Um, now, where does this tradition of equality lead an American political thinker? I tell you where it leads me, which is to immediate, deep respect for everyday choices. I think it's very important to resist the impulse to, you know, improve the lives of ordinary people without their consent. Um, and again, not just for ideological reasons, but because American history suggests that everyday citizens, not experts, are, um, are generally going to actually be the best arbiters of policy. I really believe that, 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 that they usually make better decisions than their better schooled betters. I mean, you remember how 
you know, William F. Buckley was famous for saying that he'd rather be ruled by the first, I forget, 200 names or 500 names in the Boston phone book than by the Harvard faculty. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's, that's not just rabble-rousing. That's not just a good line. That obscurantism, that, that is, I think, uh, that is the very same choice that our founding fathers made. I mean, they could have done things differently, and they voted for the phone book. Um, and, and though it was a, a radical idea at the time, they, considered, they, they decided that you know, a, the large body of ordinary Americans, because they're intently focused on their private affairs and the facts on the ground right around them, would um, ultimately be less likely to make egregious mistakes um, than um, you know, somebody who manipulates theory for a living, you know, some idiot domestic policy advisor or something like that. Um, <laughs> And I want to remind you, we are dramatically different from other uh, nations in this. Even today, you know, even after all the democratic revolutions, uh, you go to Japan or you go to most European societies, and society is much more traditionally commanded from above. Uh, there is a small elect in all these places, anointed in places like the University of Tokyo or the Sorbonne or wherever. And if you didn't go through one of those gatekeeping you know, institutions or gatekeeping clans, you're going to have a hard time rising to the levers of power. Um, uh, that, um, you know, just even more, even in a place like Britain, which has a deep democratic tradition, London is it. If you want to do anything at the highest level in Britain, you have to be in London, whether it's writing music or writing software or in finance. That's not true in this country. We, authority and power and talent are much more evenly democratically distributed across the country in, 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 uh, in our nation. And uh, again, very much to our benefit, I believe. So this isn't, I don't want to make this sound like a question of, you know, good, solid, ordinary citizens versus evil, you know, intellectuals. Um, everyday Americans are obviously not saints. They aren't, you know, savants who have magical decision-making powers. But uh, there are structural reasons. There are very solid, uh, hard reasons why Individual households are often going to make much better decisions than experts when it comes to social policy. For one thing, the, the, the people on the ground have much richer information. You know, uh, trying to do the kind of things we do every day, uh, which is separate good schools from bad schools, or good doctors from bad doctors, that's the kind of the, those are the $64,000 questions of social policy in the White House, that is really hard when attempted from a government bureau or, or an academic office. I mean, we try, but... We, we usually fail. Yet those exact kinds of individual judgments are made all the time, routinely, by everyday Americans. Not infallibly, but in general, they pick better doctors than, over worse doctors. They pick better schools over worse schools for their children. And when they do make errors in judgment, which of course they do, the errors tend to cancel out. You, you don't get sort of wild swings in one direction or another because of intellectual fashion or, or just too few people being involved in the decision. You get canceled errors. So, uh, again, there are hard and fast reasons here. One of my favorite examples I like to think about, you know, the, 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 there's, some, there's almost, almost iron rules of nature that I think indicate the, the superiority of, of a decentralized method of solving problems. I like to think about football stadiums. You know, you can take any football stadium full of 80,000 half-inebriated or fully inebriated fans and within 20 minutes of the end of the game, stadium's empty. All right? Those of you who have any experience in mathematics or statistics know that if you tried to calculate how to empty that stadium in that efficient way, 
as a central sort of decider who's going to tell everyone where to go, you literally could not do it. You could cover the football stadium from goalpost to goalpost with the computers, and you would not be able to calculate the maximally efficient way to empty that stadium in 20 minutes. Yet, you know, you let every slob decide for himself, and before the, the, the scoreboard lights are cool, he's in his Chevy, and, and the place is empty. And this is um, completely classic. Um, I read a book a few years ago called Ants at Work, which is actually very formative in my life in the White House, I will tell you. <laughs> and and uh, it was by a Stanford entomologist who studied one colony of harvester ants for 17 years. <laughs> and, and you thought you were too deep in your professional niche, right? <laughs> anyway, she, she did this, and um, her goal was to figure out, very sensible question, her goal was to figure out how do these tens of thousands of tiny creatures coordinate all of the essential tasks that have to be done to keep the colony healthy, and if they aren't done, the colony will die. You know, you got you know food harvest and storage, you got garbage toting, you got child care, you got tunnel making, war fighting. All this stuff has to be done. And uh, so she she tried to figure out who's directing the show, who makes sure that the right things get done at the right times. And the answer she discovered is nobody. Nobody's in charge. Uh, each colony operates, and this is a quote. Uh, without any central or hierarchical, hierarchical control, no insect issues commands to another. These, um, these very complex societies, a lot of specialization, by the way, I and mean, these ants don't just all do the same things. They really specialize early on and stick to those specialties. And they, when, when one particular professional branch fades, people will transfer over. Lord knows how they figure this out. But uh, these, these societies are built, she says, on thousands of, of simple decisions made by individual creatures and those micro decisions meld together to create an efficient macro result. And this isn't quite as weird as it sounds. I mean, hu- human beings who are a lot more sophisticated than ants do this all the time. And because we are more sophisticated, there's a, there's a reason to think we are, are even less in need of hierarchy and caste and, uh, and bosses and central direction. Um, you know, one of the terms for this today, the kind of trendy terms, is distributed intelligence. And, um, uh, you know, we're actually doing more of this rather than less. I mean, contrary to my, one of my heroes, George Orwell, he was dreadfully wrong on the central question of whether as a human society becomes more technological, it becomes more or less centralized. The reality is as we become more advanced, we are becoming less centralized. Um, you know, not many years ago, I can remember when the, the first Cray supercomputers were built, some of you may follow this, there were these in- intensely, uh, extraordinarily complex and centralized devices built by geniuses, and, you know, all roads, all wires led to one extraordinarily expensive custom-made central processor. And that was the way you used to figure out how to get to the moon and back or to, you know, create an atomic warhead. Those are dinosaurs now. The new supercomputers are a completely different method. The the latest versions have something like 16,000 or so of the humdrum plebeian processors that drive your Dell exact same processor and they put 16,000 of them together and they let them work in parallel and they say go to it you know break that problem down into lots of little pieces nobody's going to direct the process and you can actually solve a lot harder problems than you could on the old centralized model so again distributed intelligence I'm sure a lot of you can think of tons of examples of this Linux is another example the 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 the, uh, the computer operating language is pretty much the backbone of the of, the, of our digital society today you know, it's just amazing when you think about it. There, there is no master control over what code goes into Linux. 
this, the way it works is thousands of informal software nuts all around the globe are constantly adding and subtracting and tinkering with the code, and then they just put what they made out in the public realm, out in the marketplace, and uh, in this really fascinating and distinctly non-chaotic, I will, I will assure you, uh, process, Linux has become by far the most flexible and uh, powerful and error-free computer language of all, much better than the ones that were kind of orchestrated from university labs or, or corporate uh, headquarters. So this pattern of complex problems being solved by small actors working locally without you know, coordinating direction, it's, um, it's, it's, it's sort of the, you know, the story of our day. It's the, certainly the story of the Internet. It's the story of Wikipedia. And it's the story of all kinds of phenomena that we could talk about. But it's, uh, it's also um, something that Americans in particular, I think, are inclined toward. Um, you know, I'm a history person, and, and you go back in history, you see all kinds of examples of this. There's a, there was a, a um, I'm trying to remember what it was. It was the, actually the Battle of Kings Mountain. Uh, during the Revolutionary War, there was an American colonel named Isaac Shelby who instructed his men uh, with this battle cry, which I, I used to have on my wall. It says, when we encounter the enemy, don't wait for the word of command. Let each one of you be your own officer. And that really was the, the, the modus operandi, not only of the American army, but of, of American general. You know, when a tree falls in front of my house, I don't dial 911. I don't wait for the city to come. I get out my chainsaw. And that's what a lot of Americans do. And uh, it really makes a very different sort of society. Um, the, um, back to the West Wing. I'm having too much fun. I've got to go back to work here. So back to the West Wing. How, how should all of this affect those of us who are advising the president? Well, my view is, you know, the obvious one is that it, it ought to incline us strongly toward decentralism as a, as a kind of a uh, principle of policymaking. You should always try to resolve issues at the lowest level of governance, you know, uh, be powerfully protective of local sovereignty, local control, self-determination. And again, not out of ideology, but out of sort of surrender to the facts of nature, simple practicality. Um, the... Uh, the uh, corollary to this for me is, you know, after you recognize the power of decentralization, you have to respect all the sort of competing sources of authority that are out there. Namely, don't step on civil society. Don't squash, you know, alternative ways of solving problems. The reason that, that any wise member of government, you know, avoids um, weakening churches and, you know, fraternal organizations and nonprofit groups and small businesses is not because, you know, they have legions of voters who will rise up and punish you if you do, but uh, rather out of sort of simple kind of common sense humility that those institutions have priceless information. They have learned lessons that they've accumulated over, um, you know, generations, millennia in some cases. Those groups sprang up in the first place and survived uh, to the present moment because they captured valuable, you know, time-tested truths. And if you squash something like, um, be an example, traditional marriage. If, if If you squash something like traditional marriage, you are literally throwing away millions of trials and errors. That's... That evolved because it was tried by people, and people figured out what worked and what didn't work, and, and they went with the successful formula. Um, if you, you know, disrespect uh, the, the ancient verdicts of religion, uh, you are discarding a motherload of, of hard-won wisdom. So if, if government is going to avoid becoming unlimited and, and, and 
kind of tyrannical toward other forms of authority, you've got to leave room for these other essential institutions to do their work. Which leads me to another kind of critical, uh, critical principle of governance, which is uh, thrift. Thrift isn't just about money. Thrift, to me, is a, is a, is a kind of humility. Um, it, uh, you know, it basically encourages you not to overextend, not to, not to, not to overindulge, not to overdo things. Um, the U.S. has traditionally been a very thrifty nation, um, and that has a lot to do, I think, with us being a very lightly ruled nation and non-tyrannized nation. Um, again, go back to history. At the very same time that um, heads of state in every other place, Europe, Asia, wherever, were you know, living in, uh, and decreeing and giving orders in opulent splendor, in this country, George Washington was presiding over our nation's government from a small house in Philadelphia, which he had a furnish himself out of his own pocket, pay for himself. He had three cabinet advisors, all right, our first president did, and he had two people on his personal staff. And uh, when they went on vacation, George wrote his own letters. That's what he did. And the entire federal government in total was about 350 people at that point um, in all of its branches. And uh, one of my favorite stories, I don't know if any of you have ever read about the time Washington decided he was going to tour the South. He took this quite grandiose tour of the American South when he was president at a time when there were no roads or anything else. And he was just, you know, he didn't have his next tell walkie-talkie with him either. They, they didn't know how to find him half the time. He slept in inns along the way. And um, the innkeepers had no idea he was coming. They just the president of the United States would just show up. Do you have a bed? And the tour lasted three months. And for almost two-thirds of that time, the government had no idea where the president was. So hardly an imperial state. And this was not just a fluke of our very early history either. Um, I, I looked up Teddy Roosevelt's term of office the other day and discovered that the federal government was about a tenth of its current size in total employment at that point. Again, not ancient history. You know, probably some of you have grandparents who are alive who voted for Teddy, um, or remember Teddy at least. Um, and the government was actually one-fifteenth of its current size in, um, in per capita spending. Now, even, the good news is even today, the U.S. government is, is, is comparatively much smaller than most of our counterparts. It's about a third smaller, roughly, than most of the other industrial nations. So that's still distinctive and interesting and, and important, I think. But there is this constant tendency here as everywhere else for the government to bloat. And you, this has to be resisted if... Um, if the liberty of Americans to, you know, sort of, you know, spend their own resources and choose their own lives, is um, is going to be preserved. And uh, maybe maybe the key word there is liberty. Actually, for me, um, I think every member of government should be reminded every single morning. I mean, ideally, I'd like to see somebody invent a talking alarm clock that says this, that wakes us all up in the morning, that reminds you that you know what, in this country, government is a sideline. It really is a sideline. It is not the most important uh, part of our society. It does not do the most important things. The, the things that people really remember and care about and, and benefit from, in most cases, are private and personal and communal. You know, the government is there to pave the road so that I can get to the Mahler Symphony tonight. That's sort of the extreme level of it. But um, the the... If that's true, I mean, if it's true that the most important things in our lives are done by somebody other than the government, then, 
you know, the enlightened thing to do, the humane thing to do, is to avoid sucking power and resources into government in ways that are going to constrict the opportunities of citizens to do this private stuff out of sight. So I always try to ask myself whenever I'm evaluating a policy, very specifically, will this help individuals and families and localities to create richer lives for themselves? And that might sound a little airy-fairy, but that I think is really the right topic sentence. Will it help them create richer lives for themselves? And I repeat, for themselves, not somebody doing it for them in their name, but letting them do it for themselves. Um, Jefferson, one of those great Jefferson quotes, he, he wrote, quote, the mass of mankind has not been born with saddles on their backs, nor a favored few booted and spurred, ready to ride them legitimately. You know, that really, I think, captures in a pretty spunky way uh, a, 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 the central vision, really, of American politics, which is that government should serve and not rule. It's a big distinction. And again, something that maybe kind of sounds humdrum to your ears, but guess what, folks? That's not the way most people in most of human history have lived. Um, the idea that people should make their own decisions and order their own lives, again, it's obvious to us, but even in this century, even, even in the present century, this is not you know, the way most governments have comported themselves. There is a really powerful taste for booting and whipping the masses and accumulating power in a central state. So, again, this American tradition is very different. It's very distinctive. It's very unusual and quirky. Um, you know, the sentiment associated with Washington was that government is force. Like fire, it is a dangerous servant and a fearful master. Um, you know, poetic words and wise words, I think. So as much as possible, I suggest, um, we ought to aim to, uh, to hand off, you know, ruling assignments and to hand off resources and authority and to pass these things down to individuals and to smaller scale groups um, to bolster, uh, you know, private institutions and to always prefer the, uh, you know, the local to the large, I guess is the way I would put it. And um, to concentrate really on offering American choices rather than edicts, I think, is the central task. And if you do that, then I think um, we'll find that we're in a very good position to enjoy both the efficiency and, um, and the freedom and the sort of more ephemeral richness of a, um, of a, of a society where there is no dictator. And with that, I'm, um, if we have time, I'm happy to take questions um, or to vacate the premises. Okay. I'm going to let you break the hearts and you pick them. Aren't I political? Go ahead. If we can be very brief. Yes, since you have the president's ear, what will you do, uh, what will you advise the president to do in the next two years to implement uh, uh, your admonition of thrift and uh, decentralism? Well, you know, the first thing you do is what you encourage the president not to do, you know. And an awful lot of it ends up being stopping actions. And, you know, very recently we decided it's going to be even more in the realm of stopping actions. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I, I don't think there's anything ignoble about that work. I think that's, that's high work to sort of say no to things. So uh, I won't hesitate to do that, and most of my colleagues are happy to do that. Um, and then, you know, when it comes down to practicalities, when you're talking about subjects like, you know, immigration or 
education or healthcare, the kinds of things that those of us in domestic policy are up to our eyeballs in, it's, you know, it becomes very practical engineering decisions as to how do you actually execute um, the, the, uh, the specifics of a decision. And uh, I've, um, I've given you all my secrets, so those are, that's kind of my scorecard. That's what I used to evaluate things with. Why don't we take one more quick question, very quick. Okay, this is, this is backward looking, but uh, isn't there a tension between the idea of, uh, of having the federal policy be to de decentralize decisions in the sense that it then becomes a federal prerogative in the first place? I'm thinking, for instance, of the Medicare prescription or the, uh, the uh, educational fund, you know, with performance incentives. You've elevated it in a sense or agreed that it should be elevated to a federal level and then decentralized it, and I think that very seriously affects the outcomes at the local level. So you're saying it's, it's disorienting to citizens to kind of be whiplashed first one way, then the other? Well, yes, uh, to an extent, and it basically, uh, it, ultimately, you end up somewhat limiting the choices by the, t by the type of technocratic choices that you will allow under the federal rubrics that pass the money back. Yeah. Well, that's it, true, but you can also have positive effects. I'll give you an example that I see a lot. People sometimes say, come up to me and they say, you know, you're so excited about school choice. Well, guess what? Even if parents could choose their schools, a lot of them aren't going to get up and do it. They're just going to stay inert. And you know what? That's actually true. We know that factually there are a large, surprising number of people who will not exercise freedoms that are offered to them. But my argument is, and we saw this very much in welfare reform, where when people weren't asked or expected to be independent, guess what? They weren't. But as soon as the expectation was made that they should be independent, huge numbers of this population that everyone said couldn't work or couldn't support themselves suddenly did support themselves. And I think the same is true in, in other areas, that if people had educational choices, we might be surprised, after an initial lag, I think we might be surprised how many of them would be anxious and interested and willing to exert those choices. The reason I think they're enervated today is because they haven't ever felt like they can make a difference. They really have not been able to move the elephant, so they kind of have gotten dispirited and given up. But I think if you can transfer real authority, real resources back to people, after this initial lag where their head is swimming and they're saying, what do I do now? After that lag, they will, I think, in most cases, get involved and make good, good judgments and good decisions. Thank you very Before much. Before I thank Mr. Zinsmeister, um, one quick announcement. There's lunch served on the second floor. If you can use stairs, I urge you to go out the hallway, turn right, and follow the staff up the stairs to those lunch rooms. Um, but please uh, join me in thanking Mr. Zinsmeister for his remarks. <laughs>